Hello and welcome to Asher's Legal Outlook and the latest episode in our Energy Transform podcast series. My name is Andres Alfonso and I am a corporate partner and head of the Madrid Energy Practice in Spain. I'm joined today by Matthew Sanders, the head of Asher's Global International Arbitration Practice, and Emma Johnson, a partner in the International Arbitration Practice based in London. We are talking today about gas and LNG supply and the various contractual and non-contractual ways in which current market volatility and spot price increases can be addressed. The three of us have significant experience of advising clients in gas and LNG price reopener negotiations and the international arbitrations that result when a negotiated solution is not possible. So Matthew, this is a particular hot topic at the moment. Can you explain why? Sure. I mean, what we're seeing at the moment in the gas sector is a combination of factors that produce price volatility and produce the, the perfect storm, if you like, for disputes. Predominantly disputes will be around pricing, but also uh, disputes likely to arise out of attempts by sellers to reduce gas and energy volumes or potentially to get out of contractual supply obligations altogether. So it's definitely around supply as well as pricing. And there, there are a number of reasons for this. The most recent and most obvious factor, we guess, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia is the world's third largest supplier of oil and second largest supplier of gas. Uh, it was the largest supplier of natural gas to the EU last year, responsible for around about 40% of imports. As we know, Russian individuals and entities have been sanctioned. A number of Russian banks excluded from the SWIFT payment system. And President Putin certainly has the ability to turn off the supply taps to, to Europe. Looking back to 2008, 2009, what we call the Russia-Ukraine gas wars, um, Gazprom then turned down the pressure in pipes transiting Ukraine, and that led to a number of big supply and pricing disputes. Analysts are clear that the risk to supply now is the greatest it's been for, well, probably since Russian exports to Europe really took off in the 1980s. And importantly, the Russian government has yet to make clear what its response to the US and UK oil embargo uh, affecting Russian imports uh, of oil into, into the UK and the US, what that response will be. So we're, we wait to see. But it's important to note supply risks are not the only thing likely to give rise to disputes. Because of soaring demand driven by global economic recovery following COVID, the LNG market in particular is already very, very tight. And that tightness has been exacerbated, for example, by sanctions impacting Russian vessels that transport LNG. If you take some of those vessels out of the market, there's, there's very limited capacity. So we've got all the ingredients for supply agreements to come under strain, especially where prices are set months or years before, meaning that they're now seriously out of the money compared to what prices can be achieved on spot markets. All that means there is a clear incentive, not just to seek to adjust prices upwards, but also to explore whether deliveries that are out of the money can be avoided, for example, on force majeure grounds. So even if Gazprom does not turn the taps off for exports to Europe, the uncertainty in the market will see prices continuing to rise. And that in turn will cause parties to reconsider their commercial positions. So we are not just talking here about the scope for sellers' failure to deliver, either because supplies physically cannot be made or because sanctions prevent performance by or to particular individuals and entities, right? Yeah, that's, 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 that's the position. I mean, disruptions to the supply of oil and gas are one obvious potential impact of what's happening in Ukraine. 
but parties may seek to resolve contractual obligations irrespective of whether supply problems materialize or not. Uh, for example, there could be purchasers who no longer want to or are able to do business with sanctioned Russian entities. But it could also be sellers of gas and LNG who, notwithstanding that they're entirely detached from Russia and Ukraine, they can see a benefit in avoiding their obligations to supply at fixed prices that are out of the money. They want to benefit from higher prices achievable in the spot market. So that, that's definitely a motivating factor. So this seems to be, in effect, a perfect storm for disputes in the energy sector. Emma, what are the main contractual and legal provisions likely to be in play here? What protections should parties be considering or anticipating being invoked? Well, as Matthew said, this is about supply as well as pricing. And so an obvious provision likely to come into play is the type of volume flexibility clause that's often included in long-term supply contracts. It might be that these are increasingly put to use by sellers who want to reduce their exposure to fixed contract prices and instead free up volumes for sale on the spot market. The other obvious contractual provision likely to be in the spotlight is the price reopener provision that's found in many long-term supply contracts. You've both mentioned the term perfect storm and the last perfect storm for pricing disputes occurred in 2008 and 2009. That was prompted by the global financial crisis, liberalization of the European gas market pursuant to the EU's third energy package, and development of hub trading and the resulting decoupling of spot market and oil linked prices. Those circumstances saw many arbitrations arising out of the party's attempts to reset their contract price using contractual price reopener mechanisms. And to the extent that those mechanisms are still included in long-term supply contracts, there will likely be attempts now by sellers to rely on them. And if there is a contractual right to reopen the price, are there any specific steps that parties need to be taken or things they should be thinking about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the first priority is really to look at what the clause itself provides. It's not unusual for there to be a requirement to give notice and price review requests can even become time barred if they're not made by a set point in time or with sufficient speed. It's also important um, for parties trying to rely on price reopener provisions to be alive to any contractual obligations to negotiate and whether they might be said to constitute mand mandatory preconditions. If that argument can be made, then a failure to observe those obligations to negotiate might result in the party losing the right to seek a price review or give rise to jurisdiction and admissibility challenges if and when the matter proceeds to a dispute. The form and content requirements for a price reopener notice will vary from one contract to the next. And so the parties will need to be sure that the relevant trigger event has occurred and can be properly substantiated. Although when you're invoking the clause, you'll want to leave some wriggle room um, to expand and develop your position as negotiations develop. So it's important to substantiate, but, but not to provide too much detail. Early legal and expert import can be key here, both in terms of determining prospects of success, but also informing legal strategy and um, any commercial discussions that are going to happen before dispute. And as with all disputes, being careful to ensure that both relevant evidence is secured and potentially unhelpful documents are not created, which might fall to be disclosed to the counterparty if proceedings are started, is something that is very, very important to give careful consideration to from the outset. 
and that includes taking steps to ensure that settlement offers are covered by legal privilege to the extent that's available, but it's important to recognise that that might not be possible where evidential issues fall to be determined by reference to certain civil laws in the event of a dispute. So lots to think about. I see. So, Matthew, if a price reopener negotiation is unsuccessful, what's next? Well, typically the clause will include an arbitration agreement, so the parties will be able to refer the matter to, to an arbitral tribunal. And, and there, careful thought needs to be given as to who the arbitrators should be. Uh, they need to be properly qualified to understand and determine the dispute together with any procedural issues that, that might arise. And what's important here is that these sorts of disputes tend to be much more about economics than they are about law. So it's important to have arbitrators who are comfortable with economics and economic analysis. And there have been cases where parties have been caught by surprise because tribunals have done more than choose between one of the two pricing formulae advocated for by the parties. And instead, the tribunal has gone on and imposed an entirely new pricing mechanism, which meant not only the pricing provisions, but also, for example, uh, delivery arrangements. So we need to be careful as to what the tribunal's expected to do. Confidentiality is also particularly important. The, the, the price formulae and the economics data tends to be super, super confidential. So it's important that tribunals and the lawyers involved are familiar with the mechanisms available to preserve the, the confidentiality of the evidence during the course of the proceedings. And what if there is no contractual price review right? Of if there is such right but cannot be triggered, are there other options available in those circumstances? Uh, the, the answer is not a simple one, but but there may be. There's no doubt, really, in my mind, that we will see sellers trying to find ways to reduce or extinguish unfavorable supply obligations here, where they can't contractually reset the price. Whether or not they can successfully do that will really depend on what the contract says. And importantly, what the law applicable to the commercial relationship provides for. And there are differences here between the common law and the civil law. Um, for contracts governed by common laws, particularly English law, much will turn on what the contract itself says. The legal remedy most likely to be applicable is a claim of frustration so that the contract has become impossible to perform or radically different to what the parties had originally envisaged. But frustration if it is successfully argued, would bring the contract to a complete end. Um, and that, that might not be the most commercially desirable outcome. It might be possible instead to suspend obligations um, by arguing that the contract uh, is subject to force majeure. And from an English law perspective, that sort of argument only really exists if there is a contractual force majeure clause. So it turns on the specific wording of the contract. Force majeure isn't a standalone legal doctrine under English law. If there is a force majeure clause, it's likely that a causal link would be required between the event which constitutes force majeure and the inability of the party relying on it to perform its contractual ob obligations. So in general, the fact that performance has become more expensive or practically or even logistically more challenging, that will not be enough. And there have been many attempts over the years to argue economic force majeure, but these have, at least from an English law perspective, not succeeded. Where civil laws apply, um, such as laws of France, Switzerland, Sweden, um, it might be possible to rely on a legal doctrine of force majeure in addition to whatever the contract says. 
And force majeure under civil laws can be quite different to that under common law systems with higher thresholds that apply um, and typically something akin to impossibility of performance is required. So again, a very high threshold. There might be scope for seeking relief under civil laws on the basis of hardship or failed assumptions, as it's known in Scandinavian countries. And that would allow a court or tribunal to vary the contractual bargain originally struck between the parties because unforeseeable and extraordinary changes render the, the performance of the contract greatly more onerous. The important point to note here is that a law other than the governing law chosen by the parties might be argued to apply on the basis that it is mandatory at the place of performance. So even if the express choice of law in a contract is a common law, um, that will not necessarily rule out the possibility of some of these civil law doctrines, hardship, for example, being argued to apply as well. So there, there could be scope for additional remedies if you look beyond the four corners of the contract. It's also a situation where it might be simply commercially more attractive for some sellers to withhold supplies under their contracts, irrespective of whether there's a legal or contractual basis for doing so. It's, it's what you might call a, a cynical breach of contract. Um, it might be sellers are prepared to pay cap damages that follow if they can instead sell at much higher prices on the spot market. That's obviously a, a recipe for disputes. If the wording of liability caps is clear enough, then at least under English law, um, they may get away with it. But it's much less likely with some other legal systems, especially civil law ones, incorporating obligations of, of good faith. And just to mention one other area of law that we might see deployed as a means of resetting contractual obligations of pricing. Well, over recent years, we've seen increasing moves to use competition law uh, to that effect. So that's an area to keep an eye on. So in short, there's potentially a wide range of arguments that could be used here. Sellers that are blinkered into thinking solely about what their contract or its governing law allows could potentially be missing tricks. And buyers who similarly limit their scope of analysis run the risk of finding themselves caught by surprise. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. And thanks everybody for listening. A lot to think about here and no doubt that this is something that we will be speaking about more in future episodes as the position continues to evolve. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this topic, please do get in touch with us. There are various materials on this topic available on our website, asurus.com, where you will also find other podcast episodes in our Energy Transform series. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your usual podcast platform to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or a review. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.